Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Sinners! Robosexuality is an abomination. The good book saith a robot shall not lie down with a human, nor do it standing up, nor at any angle in between. The great and has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. They think deep thoughts, and with no more brains than you have. Hey guys, just a quick reminder that this is actually part two of the episode we recorded with Yoel Imbar. In this one, we discussed the movie Arrival. Um, if you haven't listened to part one, it should be the episode immediately preceding this one in your podcast feed. Okay, so let's talk about Arrival. If you have not watched Arrival, there are, we're going to spoil this shit out of it. So um, if you care about things like that, then, you know, pause our it's, podcast. It's really impossible to talk about if you yeah, don't no, spoil it. You like, can't. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So so I'm going to give the, the minute long summary. We also, I sort of assigned a paper on some of the psycholinguistics that uh, are behind the ideas in the movie. Uh, so Arrival is a sci-fi movie about aliens coming to visit Earth. They are attempting to communicate with us, and we have to figure out exactly what it is that they're trying to communicate. So this involves figuring out the language, both written and, well, some attempt at, at their spoken language. There are two main scientists who are tasked by the U.S. government to try their best to interact with these aliens. Now, 12, it's 12 ships in total that arrive at various parts of the world. And uh, a linguist and a physicist, which I guess the best way to say it, because we're going to launch into a more detailed discussion of it, is that on learning the language, Amy Adams seems to have powers unlocked. It's like achievement unlocked. Um, so there's something about the learning of the language that not only communicates the intentions of the aliens, um, but it also uh, provides the humans who learn that language with a gift. And that gift, again, spoiler, is that you start remembering the future. So um, uh, then they finally decode the message and everything is fine and dandy, except for little kid dies. So well, so... Yeah, so let's. Sorry, it came out of left field. It's important to mention the beginning of the movie, you see a child's life essentially um, with her mom, and you find out that the child has a rare disease and is going to die when she's a teenager. And you assume, because this is coming from the perspective of the main character, the linguist, Amy Adams, that this is a flashback. Uh, That's right. It's even filmed in a flashbacky way. Yeah. And then you have, over the course of the movie, as she learns the language, you have further just little snippets of 
again, what you assume is a flashback, and it's only at the end of the movie that you realize these aren't flashbacks, these are flash-forwards. And it's really, it's really interesting and cool once you've watched it more than once to kind of see the, pro- the progression of how that works. Like, when these flashbacks come, wh- what the nature of those flashbacks are, and um, so... Yeah, and, and and this is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who directed also Sicario and Enemies. Okay. It's expertly directed and 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 expertly written based on a short story that Yoel sent by uh, to us. What's what's the story called, Yoel? Uh, the story of your life. The story of your life. Yeah. And it raises a host of philosophical and psychological questions. So I think it's kind of perfect for us to discuss right now. I mean, I I think there's two categories of things to talk about. The first is just the mechanics of what happens, the sort of time travel-y, science fiction-y paradoxes and the way that, and the linguistic relativity, the Worf hypothesis. And then there's, you know, related but separate also are these ethical questions that involve Amy Adams deciding to have this kid and and the fact that, that it does seem to be her choice to have this kid knowing that the kid was going to die a fairly extended death um, before she turned, you know, before she went to college. It's, I don't know. You th- it seems like around 15 or 16 years old. It's Let's like, talk about the sciencey <laughs> stuff first, since you guys are both scientists. Okay. It's a clear... Allegedly. <laughs> it's such a clear clear anti-natalist uh, argument. Well, no, I want to hear... Cle- for, like, it's a like, clear bro- pro-natalist argument. <laughs> okay, broad strokes, thoughts. You, did you like it? What did you think? Uh, I liked it more the first time. So I saw it once in the theater... Um, and then I saw it the second time at home, uh, last night. I don't know. The second time I found it sort of, it seemed so glum. Like there were no jokes. There was nothing like, there were no light moments (laughs) in the movie. It was all just like, and then the music, which I thought the score was good, but it was a little bit like boom, boom the whole time. It's circular. I I really like the score. Yeah. I thought the score was good. It's just in combination with all the rest of it, it just felt a little like overbearing and uh, heavy, like really heavy. So there is a definite soundscape uh, to it. Um, uh, I I as well, we talked a little bit beforehand. I loved the movie the first time. I still really, really like the movie. For some reason on second viewing, um, I didn't like it as much, but I think it's because I, I started getting nitpicky. I think it's beautiful. It's, it's the aesthetics of the aliens. It is really difficult to make a sci-fi movie with aliens that doesn't sm- doesn't just sort of smack of being derivative in terms of like the design of the spaceships and the yeah. design of the aliens. The aliens look different. Even the textures, the visual textures of the alien skin of the spaceship, the physics of the of the ship and the gravity shit. Yeah, it's that all was very beautiful. Cool. It's be- it's just beautiful movie. Yeah. If um, all it had dis- was that opening shot, well, not an opening shot, but that shot of them coming in, flying in on the helicopter, seeing the spaceship for the first time, 
it would still be worth seeing yeah, just right. for that shot. It's it's just amazing, and the, and there there is really effective use of the score too, mm-hmm. uh, the music, right. and it's all very circular. So it, with the shadows and another helicopter that's there, and it's I so I saw it twice in the theater. It's funny that I liked it the least the second time I I saw it. So I was I would have been with you guys except that I saw it again just last night <laughs> and and liked it the the most that I've ever liked it. Partly cuz I think there are three flaws in it that that are hard to get past. Especially the second time where you know the twist but you sort of forget the weaknesses of the movie. So so one right. of them is Forrest Whitaker's Boston accent. <laughs> well, I so I bu- wanted, I'm even surprised that you called it a Boston accent. I'm not sure <laughs> that it is supposed, I'm not sure what he was going yeah. for because at the beginning he does try the Boston thing, but I literally wrote down, um, it sounds like Bugs Bunny fucked a Red Sox fan and they had a fetal alcohol syndrome baby. Sorry, that, what was that? Bron- Bugs that- Bunny fucked... <laughs> Let's just say his, his accent is a little touched. It's it, it does not. And why? Why have They're not in. They're in Montana. <laughs> There's just no reason for him to have a bad Boston accent. <laughs> it's it's the it's I was weird. trying to figure out whether he was like trying to method act, like pull some backstory out of his ass for this guy. Like uh, even in the short story, <laughs> he doesn't have a Boston nope, accent. Nope. Like what? That that it's is jarring. a mystery to me. And 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 the this the affectation of the um, military leader who is like saying stuff that is so obviously a foil to what you know as a moviegoer is the right decision because yeah. of some you know like my you know my boss yeah. is going to ask what you know have to justify why are yeah. you using such simple words I thought there was a bad use of the so it was a PG thirteen movie so they only have one fuck in it they can only say fuck one time and they sort of wasted it when he goes into the ship for the first time and is at zero gravity and he looks down and he says holy fuck and like i think he could have said holy shit there and then later when he's when jeremy renner is taking off his 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 radiation suit um because amy adams already has he he has to say screw it Whereas there, yeah. like you just say, fuck it. And that would have been a much better use of the only fuck. The, the real criticism I have, like the, the, the thing that I think makes the movie not flawless or the whole politics side of it doesn't totally work for me. And especially that little scene, which almost seems like studio driven that the soldiers decide because they've listened to right wing radio that they have to like take it on themselves to like blow up the ship with just a bunch of like dynamite explosions. That's not there that obviously (laughs) the backstory to that um, plot line is that those soldiers went to Middlebury and weren't given the chance to hear Charles, Charles Murray speak. And so they they were radicalized. radicalized. They were radicalized. Exactly. (laughs) And they, they tried to order child sex dolls, but (laughs) (laughs) So, frustration. so yeah, I so like that part, like the second time I saw it was more frustrating. The third time I knew they were coming. And so I could just like essentially ignore it, ignore it. 
um, and just focus on what I think is a beautiful emotional story. Like, I really do think that's what trans- makes this movie more transcendent is the story of Amy Adams and her and her daughter and the choice that she has to make and what it means. Like, I found that to be really moving, and I was crying a lot. I mean, I watched it in the morning, so I always cry if I watch something like at 4.30 or 5 in the morning. But like, You're, It's your wife who cries at midnight. <laughs> As if she would be <laughs> awake at, at midnight. So, so Yoel, I want to hear what you, your criticism, because I, I have something that I think bothered me even more than that. Uh, yeah, so the time stuff didn't make any sense. <clears throat> that that's what I was yeah. Say. So I wanted yeah. to ask you guys about that. It makes yeah. no sense, right? So okay, so this is gonna it's it's hard. It's yeah, it's hard to make a time movie. Yeah, but I I think they could have done a better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So so what part of it? Because uh, there's one specific thing that really doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. To me. Uh huh. I think uh, I know what you mean. So the thing is, okay. there's a pivotal scene where she needs to call this Chinese general and tell him. Basically, he needs to share his information with everybody else, and they need to call off their like military assault on the alien ship. And the way she knows how to get through to him and how to like get his attention is he tells her something later in time. So it's like this crucial thing where she's using the like time power um, to remember what happened to her in the future. So later, mm-hmm. she and the general run into each other at a party, and he's like, a great, sure a good thing you called me on my private number and she's like what i don't have your private number and he's like here it is it's sure a good thing that you told me the last words my dying wife said and she's like what are you talking about so that doesn't make any sense because then later in the movie we see her in the past doing all that stuff so that's back on the same timeline that's the past well no she's call she is remembering that that happened uh-huh so clearly in the future she should have been able to remember exactly that she had because it's her done. own past yeah. because she went and did that stuff so right. that doesn't make any sense at all so yeah. so she's she has a so the way that it works is that um, sh- there is a slow reveal of future memories for her. So as she's learning the alien's language, um, what she realized starts happening is that these thoughts that are intruding, including the sort of uh, flash forward, although the word flash forward doesn't capture it, nor does flashback, because it is a future, it is literally a future memory. They start emerging, and so critically, that memory emerges. Um, just when she needs to place the phone call. In fact, she has to wait a little bit for the memory to sort of like congeal in her mind so that she can remember this. So I took it to be that at that point, the Chinese general, so the the critical plot point is that the Chinese are about to do something aggressive in a military sense and they're pulling out and he needs to be convinced not to do this or else the whole thing will fail. Um, I, I took it to be, and this this doesn't solve the problem, um, but that the Chinese military general is at that point in the future has a memory that she told him, you need to tell me at this party that she's going to forget it. That scene confused the shit out of me the first time. The second time I, I, realized what I what I hadn't realized so much in the first part was that the the Chinese general um, had he seemed to be acting like he was saying this information because perplexingly it's somehow 
she had said at this party, tell me this, these exact pieces of information. Right. Um, now that doesn't, obviously the fact that she already knew it at that point, right? It doesn't do anything for her memory in that weird loop, but yeah. it does explain the weirdness of him saying, I know I need to tell you this right now, right. because maybe he had this memory where at some time she said in the future, right? Cause maybe he has unlocked the power yeah. in his mind. Yeah. I, I'm with you there. But she should have. Yeah. She should it's remember just, that they yeah. previously had a conversation. Yeah. But 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 can we like back up a little bit before we start bitching about the movie? Because yeah, I really do think that the way it comes out, like the little hints along the way that these are flash forwards, are really really well done. They just they they the director kind of gives you all the information you need to understand that that's what's happening. Uh, you know, from explaining the Worfian hypothesis that language shapes the way you see the world. The prologue of the movie is um, definitely takes place after the action of the movie. But then yeah. once the action of the movie starts, she gets these little flash forwards at like kind of perfect inter intervals as she's learning the language of of the aliens and the language of the aliens is such that they don't see time as linear they see it as kind of continuous or one right let's just apply a correction for time travel plots where there is no to date no satisfying right. unless i unless i don't unless primer is satisfying and i just haven't really really yeah but that's impossible that. to understand right I would love it's to. It's sort of that impossible way. to understand. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, but so apply a correction there for for there always being inconsistencies in time travel movies. This movie is trying to convey an emotion, and it's yeah. successful in conveying an emotion and 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 the feeling. And there is a uh, there's two things that I wanted to mention. One, you ha the it is a minimum of twice that you have to watch this movie to appreciate it. Appreciate the aspect. I, I, I think, think three times valuable. based on what you were saying. Well, yeah, yeah, may, no, yeah, may, uh, yeah may, maybe my dream. Will. So that opening scene has to be one of the saddest uh, yeah. montages in a movie, but it it's only that sad when you know what it is. Yeah. When I was watching it the second time, I thought, you know, there is there is the montage in the movie up. So yeah. sort of anime, yeah, uh, which is one of the most that. fucking depressing things yeah. I've ever seen, and it surprises me. But to, in terms of just storytelling, conveying an emotion in a few short minutes is amazing. Two, Amy Adams should should win the Oscar for everything for this performance because, and she wasn't even nominated. No, she wasn't even nominated. But the whole movie hinges on because it is a very internal uh, story. It is the story of a, her character, yeah. and it's told in a way that obviously involves, you know, gets Forrest Whitaker's droopy eye involved. But it is about her and her slowly understanding what's going on. And without her facial expressions conveying this, the movie would suck balls. Yeah, and absolutely. she, I think she nails it. Right, I, I do she, too. She, like right. she, and 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 I think you said it exactly right. If she doesn't give a good performance, this movie is unwatchable. But she yeah. gives a great performance, and it makes it beautiful. Mm. 
Nobody else matters, really. I mean, Jeremy Renner, like, yeah. it's great, fine, or whatever, but you don't even care what he really feels. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I think just... they cut out a lot of his scenes because they realized post-shooting that it was her movie even more yeah. than they thought it was before. Yeah. The, the last thing I was going to say is D- Denis Villeneuve, the Quebecois director who, who yeah. did this. Um, it, it really, at first, I was surprised given the sort of pretty negative in terms of affect his his previous movies um but as we were talking and and you all was saying about like the sort of neg like the the pretty depressing soundscape and the like that i realized it, it still is his it's still very much one yeah. of his movies mm, it's, right? it's, Wait, it's can i throw in one thing though before we move on like yeah yeah go in for the it. short story they handled the uh paradox uh stuff completely differently which is that everything has to happen you know it's going to happen. And you just really feel like you have to do the right thing in the moment, knowing that that's the thing you're going to do. Oh, uh, you got to play your role. It's exactly. Like a, exactly. So it, he just like a Calvinist. Yeah. Yeah. He describes a right. scene where it's like two linguists who both know the language so they can see the future and one other person having a conversation and the two linguists feeling like sort of like they're in a play and they have their lines and like the thing that they most want to do is say the next line, you know? So it's like, you know, the script and the other person right on cue doesn't know the script, huh. but is saying exactly what he's supposed to say, which in a way feels much like trippier to me than, than right. what they actually the did. Problem, in the so I, I listened to an interview with the screenwriter on this and he said, so the story emphasizes this kind of deterministic worldview, but I wanted to focus, I wanted to give Amy Adams free will, which I, I want to talk about because it, it doesn't yeah. totally make sense to me the way she has free will here, but um, but that maybe that's more in the ethics. Uh, but the way the, so because I read the story, I read the whole story, the way he describes it, the image that he uses is that... It's like that that picture. It's like a Necker cube or the picture of the old lady and the hat and the beautiful young lady mm-hmm. that you can look at it one way, but when you're looking at it that way, you can't see it the other way. You can't see them both at the same time. You can't see the Necker cube um, both ways at the same time. I take it, and tell me if you disagree, Yoel, that the way that the story understands time is that when you're aware of the future you can't be aware of your own free will your ability to make conscious choices one way or the other and vice versa when you are aware of your ability to make conscious choices one way or the other then you can't see the future yeah so at every moment right yeah is that how they deal with it yeah yeah that's right but that's that's not unproblematic right uh, like when would you lose that sense that you can make conscious choices just because you can see the future? Well, uh, in the way that Yoel described, maybe where where you feel like you're reading lines. That that's a very different way of understanding how you act, right? Yeah, I've had that feeling. Have you ever gotten really high and you feel like you're just, you know, you're you're like watching yourself do the lines? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny because actually, in one of our early episodes on free will. Tamler actually made the claim that he doesn't have the phenomenology of choice throughout most of the day where like you're you're the the like like an array of options are before you because I was saying that I have like I feel like my whole life like it's hard for me to shake the intuition that I'm constantly choosing freely and Tamler was like I rarely feel that 
That was so I, that was before I started writing my book. Where now I feel like I'm <laughs> consciously always like uh, it's like it, to it's work like on I, it or not to work <laughs> on it. Yeah, it's like when when you just when you're on the toilet and it's not quite coming out, you just have to like just strain. Like everything is just strain. <laughs> um. Uh, All right. I just wanted to say I think that the movie makes much more sense when if if it is. It, if it is the main character coming to terms with the complete determinism, I think that it's a little bit of a Hollywood flourish that ruins it um, by trying to give us the sense, and they don't do it heavy-handedly. But like what you, what you're left at least what I was left with at the end of the first time I saw it was that Amy Adams ended up making the decision not to tell. So, so here's the plot is that she ends up marrying the physicist Ian, played by Jeremy Renner, and they end up having a daughter who who gets um, a very bad disease, some some form of cancer, I guess, um, and, and dies when she's happen. 16. And she knows it's going to happen before even starting the courtship with Jeremy Renner. Um, and I think that um, giving the the sense in which you think that Amy Adams despite knowing this decided to to do this doesn't make any sense at all right it the whole movie would fall apart if she had any say in the future by her own choices right you know couldn't you just decide to have sex on a different night i mean mm-hmm. it was like a rare well, disease is... that you you know need a genetic predisposition to or whatever like get a different you know uh sperm boom yeah problem solved yeah I agree. Like, I don't get that part. And I, so I get the sort of emotional, moral message here, which is if this is like something I would think, Dave, you could learn from, like, <laughs> knowing that you're going to die, which you do, should make you cherish the time that you're alive all the more. Right. Never like, that's die. the, that's the message. And I think, she treasured ev- i mean she says it like at, at one point she tr- despite knowing the journey and where it leads i embrace it and i welcome every moment of it that's a fine message but i still don't like yoel's question is absolutely right like why not just have sex on a different night i guess she doesn't know what night would be the right night for that not to happen but why doesn't well again she know that? it really yeah, doesn't make she? any s- it doesn't make any sense unless just she is coming to terms with the truth of determinism, right? Like it is yeah. just, um, if, if she, like, I, I agree with what you're saying, Tamla, like, but it only, that only makes sense if you think you don't, if you're resigned to knowing that the future is fixed and you say, well, like I, you know, Hey, I'm going to enjoy this set of events no matter what. But um, then how, then, then your life doesn't make sense because you're, because like, you're like, okay, now I know I'm, I'm going to have sex and lead to my daughter. Die. Uh, oh, well, the, oh, oh, I'm getting pulled to the bed. Like, you know, um, I, I agree <laughs> that I've had that experience, but it's not my most common experience, especially when I'm, I imagine myself about to do something that will lead to the death of my future child. Like I'm not gonna, I don't get pulled to the bed in those situations. That's never no, happened to me. No, but I don't know. I don't know that you necessarily need. Although I didn't read the story, so so if they talk about this, um, correct me. But I don't think that you need the phenomenology of not having fruit. Like determinism can be true, and everything that you do can still feel the same way. You just know that the outcome is fixed, right? So it's gonna, not that you just know the outcome is fixed. You know the outcome. 
Yeah, and you you know the outcome, you know that it's fixed. So she doesn't, but she, what she doesn't know is that that night is the one that led to to the pregnancy, right? So she's just why doesn't she know that? Like she's getting bit pieces of events, and I don't know that the um that the entire future. I think it's more problematic when you're talking about the aliens, and this was my big problem, which is the aliens know exactly what's going to happen. They could easily have warned them about the explosive. Yeah, device, that is a like, weird at the very right. beginning. Hey guys, turn that thing off. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's well, like he was trying to urgency. warn them. He was trying no, to warn them. No, but he could have warned them the minute they Abbott. learned the language, is what I'm saying. could have warned them in English. You could have warned them the previous visit. <laughs> right. It, this like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Those soldiers totally. have been watching a lot of right wing talk uh, TV. You might want to keep yeah. an eye out. When you posit some group of creatures that has absolute access to the entire timeline, then there is no reason for the timing. Like there's no urgency. That's a really good point. Right. Like yeah. <laughs> And no reason so. to let poor Abbott die. Yeah. Well, they I mean Except they're not letting him. That's the die. thing. Is it, yeah, yeah. He's gonna die and like nothing you could do. You can have you could have the phenomenology of freedom and have absolutely no control, right? They call this a gift, right? They call this a gift, this ability to see the future. Is it a gift? No, I, w- I mean, I wouldn't. My daughter asked me this. She said, would you, it would, she actually asked it this way. She said, if you could choose between knowing uh, when you're going to die or how you're going to die, which one would you choose? <laughs> and I was like, how I'm going to die, dude? Because I don't want to know that I'm going to die next week if it's mm. true, you know? Uh, and she actually gave me an existential argument that I should be, wouldn't you live your life better if you knew you were going to die next week? I was like, yeah, but that's not how it works. <laughs> I, no, I wouldn't take it. You all, would you? No. I, I don't I don't want this plot to start to unravel, but why doesn't she tell Jeremy Renner about this? Yeah, or like, wh- I think she should tell That's him- what caused the divorce, right? Yeah. yeah. The, the weird thing is telling him in the middle. It's like, tell him either before they have the baby or never tell him. But telling him yeah. when yeah. she's like eight, it just, it just seems crazy. At that point, it's like he's going to know if she gets sick. Like, you knew this was going to happen. And it, it right. seems like also like a very weird response to then decide to spend less time with your, do- with your <laughs> yeah, daughter. Seriously. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. We'd like to take a moment to thank all the people who have contacted us, supported us. So if you want to contact us, you can um, email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. 
You can tweet us at Tamler, at Peas, or at Very Bad Wizards, or what's your, or, or you're off Twitter now, right? Uh, I still check my mentions yep. occasionally. At Yorl, All right. Y-O-R-L. At Yorl. You can follow us on Instagram. Eliza is, <laughs> I think, for now, sort of taking to it so we'll see we'll see how that goes and follow it'll make her feel good you can also support us in more tangible ways we love our patreon supporters patreon.com slash very bad wizards so maybe we'll get the t-shirt and mug campaign back up and running again um on teespring and um amazon is a great way to support us as well you go to our website click on the amazon link before you make your large purchases and we will get a small cut of that you can also give us a one-time donation on paypal all of this is on the support page of our website and rate us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes like steal one of your friend's phone and subscribe <laughs> on that phone if you don't have an iphone the tamler's willing to game the system for <laughs> them for the itunes ranking yeah uh, I, I just want like i i think uh, i'm not saying we'll pass partially examined life because we never will because they have some sort of built-in systemic uh, advantage. They're, they're like the Joker to our Batman. They they exist because of us, and they and then yeah. and they're built to resist us. <laughs> and all they care about is like chaos and destruction. <laughs> and did I leave out anything else? I think that's it, right? Let's talk about the language stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so th- one thing I wanted to say was that that's another part of the aesthetics that is, is gorgeous, right? That that actual language uh, is so mm-hmm. creative. Um, the written the written version. Um, I you usually don't see anything like that. So the designers of that language, which included Stephen Wolfram's son, I believe, uh, um, Wolfram Senior and Junior worked together on it. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, um, which makes sense. So there is actually actual meaning to those to those glyphs. But it is also just absolutely fucking stunning that scene where they um have to communicate everything at once and so they yeah. just shoot yeah. out everything right yeah. jizz they jizz meaning abbott knows he's gonna die so like one of the costello like swims away or whatever they do away yeah. Yeah. and abbott stays there knowing that he's gonna die if he does and puts all that stuff up there just like gives them everything at that point and right. that was one thing that I only noticed on the third viewing was that this was essentially like sacrificing himself for this cause, knowing, yeah. I guess, that he was going to sacrifice himself. <laughs> uh, but uh, but yeah, like that, that, that was so. So, uh, OK, so can I, let me just talk about one of this this other problem um, that was to me the, the most central one. Um, they start off with acknowledging the real difficulty that you would have in a in in a way that most science fiction right like star trek they they all gloss over this but the real real problem you would have is that an alien's language would be so different that you would be unable to f- start communicating and they make such quick work of getting past this problem that it's like why did they raise it to begin with and and the problem is that that of reference, right? Like the the Gavagai problem. I don't know if you 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 know this Tamler. Hey, quiet. 
Or if you're paying attention. <laughs> he just turns away. Like ignores everything we're saying. No, um, I, I'm sorry. Like this is. I don't want your insights to be drowned out by dogs fighting. <laughs> the main problem is that that of reference, which is like W V O Quine <laughs> introduced with his oh example of Gavagai. So, so it's the inscrutability of reference, and the problem is simple, right? When I, if if I don't know your language, and I point to myself and I say, David, how the hell do you know that I'm talking about human beings, skin, red, a sweatshirt? There's no, there is really no seeming way in which you can tell what the hell the reference is, um, and. They acknowledge this as the problem and they quickly just ignore it. Like when she writes on the chalkboard human and points to herself, right? It's like w- w- the whole, right? The, the reason that we can get over this as human beings with each other is that there is an assumption that our shared biology means that we're biased towards, say, labeling nouns um, and a certain level of category, right? So so the example that Quine gives is is the guy trying to learn the language and he points to a, uh, the native points to a rabbit running, I think. And it says Gavagai. Like we're biased to think that he's talking about the rabbit, not the grass, not the verb run all like, right. That's that. And that's probably just because we have the same kind of brains. Um, Learning their language would just be impossible. It's certainly not doable in that short time. But, but they address the problem, that same problem that you're talking about in the later scene where she takes off her radiation outfit <laughs> to differentiate between human meaning just generally I'm human versus I'm like uh, Louise, right? Like, so she, that, that's the motivation. So, I mean, that, that's in a way addressing at a later stage the problem you're talking about. And she does that explicitly. That doesn't solve the problem at all. Like, I took that point to be that she feels like she needs a personal connection with the aliens and that oh, it's no, too no, cold. Oh, no, no, no. She, she, she actually not. says, like, he doesn't understand. They're yeah. confused. They think, I, first no, no, I told I, them that I was human, and now I'm telling I'm Louise. So she thinks that I'm like, that Louise is another name for human. Or or, or they, they misunderstood the human part. Like, she says that. Yeah, I get I get that she might think that it's a solution, but like I'm what I'm saying is that it's actually not like that doesn't add any information to get around that problem, right? They might you might think oh she meant redheads. Yeah, I mean to like, the alien no, like they, yeah. they don't know what a face is, you know they don't know what's no. important. They don't like it's a very human perspective to be like oh I need to see your face to understand you're an individual. But to me it was one of those things where it's like well that was awfully easy. But yeah. it is a movie, and I don't want to watch a four-hour movie about them grinding it out with these aliens who are constantly getting confused about, do you mean human or woman or redhead or Louise or whatever? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I take the of point. Course. The basis of the movie is this idea that when you learn a language, it, uh, quote-unquote, rewires your brain such that uh, you can think things or perceive the world in ways which you couldn't before. Um, and this is the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, something that's, uh, I think, pretty controversial. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that's why I gave, and we'll link to this article by Santo. That's why I gave uh, this article that is more sympathetic, at least to some versions of this view, but but 
and there are different ways to describe this and they're actually like pretty careful in the way that they say it in the movie they had a linguist consultant and they say it very specifically that sort of the language determines the way that you see the world and it is because of that the alien language actually allows them to start perceiving the future. I think the versions of this that are debated is really like, so how serious is this influence? So um, here's one strong view of it that I think the movie would probably require. Um, if your language has, say, um, there are some languages that don't have separate words for green and for blue. So they call it something like gru. So the claim by some of the sort of strong linguistic determinism people was that that means that the people who speak that language actually cannot distinguish between green and blue, right? Like, like they don't see green and blue, they see gru. And uh, because you and I have the words for green and blue, we actually see two different colors. And that's a pretty um, counterintuitive claim because you think about the experience of learning a new language, it's, you know, it's often true that there's a word in that language that you don't have in your native language, like uh, Schadenfreude in German. There's no word for that. Wait, in... say, Tamler, say it. How did Tamler say it? Schadenfreude? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I feel like you were making an effort this time. I feel like you really, you just went to town last time. It was just, just gruesome. It's a little unfair. Yoel is just a German speaker. I forget. I don't, I don't know what you did. It was, we got a text. We got a text from Yoel that was just mocking this Chandler's pronunciation of that word. I don't even remember what you said. I wanted to raise a strong objection to the pronunciation. You are a German speaker. Yeah. So it's not, it's not a a fair fight. I'm sorry. I don't speak Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you can't understand the truth of white supremacy. When yeah. you finally understand German, it unlocks yeah, this it power. It on you. It like <laughs> unlocks in your head. No um, wonder Yoel is such a big Charles Murray. Yeah, it's all coming together. So yeah. anyway, the point is you learn this word and you're like, oh, there's a word for this concept. But the concept itself is something that you can get easily despite never having had the word. So if I'm like, hey, you know that pleasure you feel when somebody you don't like suffers a misfortune? You're like, yeah, absolutely. Right? I'm like, right. oh, Sean, like, so I, just I don't get it. You're, like, I don't you're not like, get oh, it. I'm confused. Right? <laughs> you mean sadness? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So that's mostly our experience learning uh, new languages. It's not that like, oh, all of a sudden I understand something that I just fundamentally couldn't get before. My perception is like radically changed. It's like, no, we have a convenient new label for a concept that we can explain just using more words uh, in a different language. As I understood the paper, which I actually like, it was making a distinction between your language determining the way you see the world versus your language influencing the way you see the world. And I don't know if the movie requires more than the latter view, that once you learn this language, it opens doors for you, but it doesn't necessarily determine the way that you think, but it it expands your ability to think. Um, no, I think it does because before... Or it shapes it. Yeah, before you know the alien language, you can't see through time. So, like, there's yeah. this whole perceptual space that you gain by learning the language that describes right yeah it's not it's not that they're teaching a skill by explaining it in their language it really is that learning the language is what unlocks that that perception 
So, so presumably you've learned some concept now that is only communicable in that language. <clears throat> I think the analog would be if, well, if it were a skill that could be taught by just translating that language and explaining the concepts to English speakers or whether it requires actual knowledge of those, whatever, you know, glyphs. But I think that there is the part where Jeremy Renner says it rewires your brain, where I think that it's intended to, to be that right. that the language is actually causing physiological changes, which, of course, I mean, yeah. Which yeah. languages would, right? right. Yeah, like, of course. Like, I can would, right? like, how could your brain not change? <laughs> it's like you're changing. Like anything Tamler, rewires your brain. Tamler changed my brain quite a bit. Just that, and that's the part that I think people... Like, like there's an obvious way in which it's true, but there's even, I think, more interesting ways in which it's probably true that don't require, like, the hardest form of determinism, which is, I don't really know the different words, like, the different categories of trees. Like, I'm not good at distinguishing plants. Like, and so I'm walking through a forest, and I say to myself, like, there are a lot of trees. I don't, I don't say, like, oh, look at all the firs that are, that are out here, and I wonder why there aren't more oaks. So it's deploy. I think that learning certain concepts linguistically might deploy your attention differently. Mm-hmm. So you actually yeah. are more likely to notice and remember and talk about certain features of the world. Yeah, you have a schema. But as UL says, yeah. yeah. But as UL says, like, it's not like you can't explain that to somebody pretty easily in another language. So in fact, like men and women actually have very different words they use for color. So men tend to say things like, well, there's brown and blue and red. And women are much more likely to say, and there's fuchsia and pink and and mauve and like they there are like if you look at the color palette there is an increased vocabulary that's gendered and i don't think it's because i can't see fuchsia it's just because why the fuck would i bother to categorize something as fuchsia and right? i don't even know what fuchsia or mauve <laughs> or <is>. mauve <laughs> yeah I'm not sure. I have no I, idea. I'm not. I'm not 100. They're sure all kind of purple, either. aren't they? Like you could put five colors in front of me and say yeah. one of them's fuchsia, and I would have a 20 percent chance of guessing <laughs> which one. But what would be miraculous is if there were a color that you never saw until you learned like Latin, and then you're like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that just popped out at me. <laughs> Ceteris. <laughs> yeah, mutatis mutandis. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> But it wasn't until I learned the word p-hacking that I realized that I was doing it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so these experiments um, that are in the paper, I think, are are interesting. And they're neat, but they don't, to me, really get to the point of, does language shape our perceptual abilities in in a deep way? Like, So, So describe the experiment. So one experiment... Um, looks at people's percep- perception of time um, and how that's represented linguistically. So in English, we would say that was a long meeting. So we would use the metaphor of length. Uh, whereas in Greek, evidently, I don't speak Greek, but the paper claims you would say like that would, that meeting took much time. And like that, as an English speaker, you understand what's meant. It just does. It sounds awkward, right? Um, right. So it's volume versus uh, length. And then they show... English speakers and Greek speakers, either lines that grow over time or like a volume that fills over time. And your job is to estimate how much time passed while the line was growing or the volume was filling. And it always takes the same time, but they manipulate how quickly the growing or filling happens, such that if you have a length-based metaphor for time, then you should get some interference from seeing this line grow a lot. Whereas if you have a volume-based metaphor for time, you should get some interference 
from seeing the volume filling a lot. So uh, it should bias your judgments in that direction. And that's that's what they get is that you get more of a bias from the line growing for English speakers who have uh, the length metaphor for time and more of a bias in time judgments uh, for the volume filling for Greek speakers who have a volume metaphor for time. Um, and I think that's cool. Uh, right. But to me, that just says like, well, okay, you activate certain metaphors that you're used to using a lot. And that can have some effect, like what you have cognitively available to you then has some effect on the judgment that you're making. Now, that seems kind of right. uncontroversial, really. Um, yeah. I mean, suppose you have like the, the metaphor that like arguments are like war, right? Like you will act differently. You literally, you'll probably treat it much differently than if your metaphor was that arguments are like math problems to be solved or something like that. Right. Right. And, and so the fact that it can influence your behavior, the network of association of associated concepts, um, like, you know, all, you, you know, even non-linguistic things, I, I don't think is that controversial. And, right. and and but those are cool studies right um so this is like the feminist philosopher critique of you know a lot of political philosophy Rawls and right like know, are the, you the, is that a penetrating argument tim like yeah <laughs> wait what's the yeah. critique i don't i don't well, know just that they see things in terms of individuals and competition and self-interest uh, okay, gotcha. and there's no like emotional connections no care you know yeah. the ethics of care is yeah. sort of oriented around that kind of critique yeah as i understand right. it so which i'm very right. sympathetic to what i was imagining was imagine you do an experiment where uh you tell people you show people two pictures and you're like this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and your job is in these scenes to say is the good guy in it or is the bad guy in it? right so that's the judgment they have to make and then you put the good guy either in like a white hat outfit or a black hat outfit and the same for the bad guy. And you can imagine that when the outfit, which is just like a metaphor that you've learned in your culture, matches uh, their, you know, moral right. character, you'd be quicker, right? Like you're quicker to identify the good guy when he's dressed in so white. It's like a stroop. Yeah, it's like a right. exactly. It's an interference task, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And would you conclude from that that there's, you know, uh, our language shapes our perceptions and cognition in a deep way? Like, I don't know. Not really. To me, it's like, no, this metaphor is interfering with our judgments. Seems like I mean we pre we pretty much have only one good way of shaping each other's uh, each other's cognitive processes and that is <laughs> through language, yeah. right? So like what, so, like what yeah. would be convincing for you guys then? Well, so did any of these color studies hold up, purporting to show that you know if you have more color words, you're actually better at distinguishing colors so i think that at best what they show is what you what you might even be surprised at in terms of attention memory and categorization at mm -hmm. those three levels people really do treat colors differently um so so people will if you give them a bunch of color chips to organize they will put like and like together depending on what their language is so if, if the if say green and blue go together in your one category um you're more likely to put green and blue in that same pile right um so you are more likely to remember sort of uh like right so if if i give you a prompt about green the you will remember the blue instances yeah. as well and and it, it can go, I think, deeper into your psychology than maybe you would expect. Yeah. But I, what 
Sorry, go ahead. What there's no good evidence, yeah, yeah, what there's no, I don't think, good evidence for is that um, anybody would be constrained by the term. That is, it's yeah. not that they can't see the spectrum. Right, right. right. So, so that to me seems like just having a schema. So if you imagine like yeah. somebody who's a whiskey fan versus not, um, the whiskey fan would be like, well, I drank one Highland scotch and one Islay scotch, and then I drank a bourbon. And to somebody who's not, it's like, I don't know, it all tasted like fire, right? <laughs> like, mo- yeah, like moss <laughs> and gasoline. Like, like varnish <laughs> and nail polish remover. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that's um, that's been shown a lot, right? Um, that when you have a schema, right. you're, you're better able to... Uh, pick out the distinguishing details, you have a better memory, uh, you process uh, the information more easily. Like what I would be impressed by is like, if you show people literally the two swatches and you're like, um, do you see a difference here or not? That if they have the word to distinguish them, they're more likely to say, yeah, those are not exactly the same. Well, and that's the, that there is the problem because a lot of times the tasks that purport to show something like that are getting judgments where you say, yeah, those are the same color in the same way that you guys might say, you know, pink and, and fuchsia are the same color. Yeah, that's a, you would say that's maybe a lighter shade or a darker shade, but you would right. say, yeah, they're both pink, right? right? One difficulty is just how do you test this? Well, yeah. you can tell people so like... from within your own prism that it's very hard to come up with a test. I don't know. You can, you can stands outside of it. Like, um, is this exactly the same color? Where by exactly the same color, we mean exactly the same shade, exactly the same hue. If you think that you would use the same word to describe both these colors, but one looks a little darker, lighter too, then don't say it's the same color, say it's a different color, right? So you, you can give yeah. them right. really explicit instructions 20, about 20 what bucks. <laughs> 20 bucks to get it right. Um, well, of course, that is your phallocentric European uh, white male view yeah. of science. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's very hierarchical. You're ordering people to like, do things exactly your way. Before we stop, which we should very soon, um, the central moral dilemma, as I understand it from the movie, which is Amy Adams deciding to have this child that she knows is going to die. And, you know, there's a line where, you know, she's flashing forward and she says that the the her, that Jeremy Renner the husband left her because she made the wrong choice implying that she had a choice and could and could have decided not to have the baby now we've talked about why that doesn't make sense but let's just say it does and she did have a choice so you can have this this child that you know is only going to live till 15 or 16 and will die a fairly extended death that involves some suffering, it seems like. Do you have the child? Can Can I ask you guys, since I didn't read the story, does the story pose the same dilemma no. at all? No. Well, she, she knows she's going to die in a rock climbing accident. Yeah. Uh, but it's just and, you, you do what she's you're going to do. Yeah, she's 25 right. in the story, I think. Yeah. She dies. But also it's like it's it's just you're you're gonna do it anyway. So right. there's no choice involved. Right. There's right. no dilemma. Yeah, really. exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um well I don't know, you guys are parents and I'm not. Um, but it seems to me like you have a kid knowing that the kid is gonna die. So if it's in eighty years if you're lucky or in fifteen if you're not, um isn't that just You're in a better you know? position to answer because you don't have a kid though, because uh, right. 
Yeah. We're not going to say. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, but I, th- I think that, like, it's super hard to undo, right? Like, yeah. having a kid or whatever, you know? Yeah. Not it's, that hard. Uh, okay, it's like getting right. a dog. Like, if I knew that my dog actually was going to die in two years at premature death, like, i kind of banking on that I'm going to get, like, a, you know, good 10 to 15 years out of a dog. And I would be tempted to say, no, I'm not going to get a dog if I knew that it was going to, like, die in two years a painful death. But right, like, I mean, the question is knowing, as you posed it, knowing that it is very, very premature and it's, it's very 15 painful. years, 16 years, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I would hesitate, it would be because it would be a bummer for me. Not because I think that it's uh, unfair to her. That's actually like, it's convincing to me in my dog example. Like, if I knew for a fact that the dog was going to die in two years, it's just that... It's just that I don't want to suffer. Yeah, that's why I would like, never get like a Great yeah. Dane or something because they die like yeah. immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and you know they're gonna die. Yeah, like, yeah. Within like eight or nine. Yeah, years. They, they right. right? Yeah. Like they don't make it to ten. It's I don't understand yeah. actually why people get the dogs. It's just like you're setting yourself up for like immediate. <laughs> well, what's the right number of years? <laughs> what's the right number? I, I I think that's the sort of the interesting part of the movie is that I do think that. You know, like the like Jews who test first Tay-Sachs disease face this dilemma, except it's a little easier because the child is going to die at two and it's going to be a very slow, painful process the whole way. Clearly, there's there's a time between Tay-Sachs time and a normal life where. Tay-Sachs time <laughs> sounds like a sounds no, like you know a game. What I mean? Like there, there, there is like a a year, a number of years that you're banking on to make it worth it, either for you, for them, for everybody. You know? Yeah. It's clearly like a a, a weird, like non-rational function of the yeah. expected lifespan, right? Where it's like if all dogs lived to be 10, like we would have no problems getting right. yeah. getting great Dane. I don't think I would have a kid if I knew if I knew that uh, I would outlive them. For sure. Well, that's what Grandpa Simpson said was like the greatest <laughs> possible outcome. But um, so there's a couple things that weigh in favor of her doing it that the movie mentions, right? Number one, that she would treasure every moment, like really cherish it. She's not going to be on her phone when she's with the kid. She's not going to be distracted. She's really getting everything she can out of it. And number two, the, the, the movie like takes pains to say that she the the child lives uh leaves things that inspire the world and that live beyond her the, that whole scene where she says that you're unstoppable and that your art and your poetry inspires people and you're unstoppable that's right after she she has the conversation where she says her her dad is mad at her for making the wrong choice and she's essentially saying like one of the reasons I'm doing this is because there's this stuff that you're going to do that inspires others that's going to live beyond your death even though she doesn't want to say that to a 6-year-old 7-year-old kid she's like a consequentialist she's like depending on the contribution <laughs> in your 16 years like yeah. <laughs> it will have made this worth it i don't know like that 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 sort of swayed me a little bit you know like if a kid is if if you're going to if you're going to really cherish the time that you're with the kid and the kid le- like leaves a kind of legacy 
then maybe that's she made the right choice. So I think that this resonates because it is making a more general point about our existence, which is that we're yeah. all in this situation, right? And I right. think that one of the nice things that I like about the movie is <clears throat> when they're showing those whatever flash forward flashbacks, um, there are moments where she gets frustrated with her daughter in the way that anybody would. And yeah. that it's because you can't help. Like we know we're going to die. We know our kids are going to die. And like we're the only difference is that, um, that she knows that, you know, the timing more than we do, but like, that's how, like if you, if you ideally would live your life, it would be sort of genuinely uh, valuing every moment as, uh, and, and treating somebody like a treasure. And, but you just can't live your day to day. So, so she gets frustrated and then, I don't know how it works actually in the movie because she forgets the zero sum thing. But I'm like, wait, she, wouldn't you remember not to get frustrated with your daughter at that moment? And um, right. But that is the moment where it reminded me like, hey, you know what? Life is life. And sometimes you just get annoyed and pissed and it doesn't matter that you know that they're going to die when they're 16 and that this is like all ch cherished time. Yeah. I yeah. mean, just like you forget memories that were like you forget the name of that actor even though you know the name of that actor you know like maybe you forget something from the future you forget something from the past and you're just on autopilot but she knows so much more now and there's stuff beyond your control so just treasure what you can control that's that's a nice message that we could all learn from mm-hmm yeah, although I thought where you were going was just learn that you can't control anything. Because I think that one way of telling the story would be that the way in which the author of the story seems to have... I didn't read the story, but where he really wants to say, like, hey, remember, none of this really is under your control, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy all of these moments. But it seems like you could at least control then how much attention you're focused, you focus on the time that you have with the person like yeah although my sense from the author and i actually watched a little vignette but if you get the itunes you get these the little uh, special things and they they interview the author and it was funny to see the difference between his take on it like i think that he maybe just wanted it to be like a well you can't control anything but that doesn't mean you can't value everything because it's unclear what you could and could not control if you knew all of the events right but then it's also unclear to what extent you could value things or not if <laughs> right. you can't control Yeah, them. you're just going to value how much you valued. <laughs> like, there's no... Right. So I'll fucking end it right now. <laughs> Wait. But I know I won't. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what I thought you were supposed to take from it was like, listen, if you know you have 15 years, treasure every moment, and doesn't that apply to everybody because like 15, 40... What's the difference? Like, <laughs> right. right. It's not like, oh, we have 40 years together, so I'm just going to sit here and look at my iPad and uh, ignore my kid. Right. That's. Yeah. What I know you shouldn't do is leave your wife and kid. Because... <laughs> I know. We, we, everybody's <laughs> on the same page there. That That is just a dick move. Well, we don't know why he really left. It could have been some like hot, <laughs> hot undergrad. <laughs> it was totally his grad student. I think I know. It's in my head cannon. There's like. <laughs> Totally. She's going to die anyway. She's a great Dane. So, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going with Brandy. She liked my physics of time class. Speaking of physics right. of time. Yeah. Yeah. Yoel is the Jeremy Renner of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> the Great Boss has spoken. 